The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is a former bomber and fighter pilot and is also an accomplished aviation artist. After joining the British Air Force, Tim Nolan flew Vulcan bombers during the Cold War and even flew a Phantom F-4 fighter during the war in the Falklands. And it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Tim Nolan, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you, Mark. Nice to meet you. Flying has been an integral part of your life. What got you into flying in the first place? Um, I had no family background. Uh, a lot of people do, but I didn't. I was just as an ordinary schoolboy, Manchester, England, and um, looking out the window, thinking, oh, that would be a great job. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that easy. I mean, I was at a, what we call a, well, you have grammar schools here, I think. And uh, <clears throat> so I put my hand up when I was 17 to go for selection for the, for the RAF, uh, the Navy, as a pilot. And also to, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, Civil Flying School for British Airways. And I thought, I want to be a pilot. They'll take me. Oh, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> You know, it's a, <clears throat> the selection was probably one in a hundred who people who apply. They they filter it down. So if you get if you get to go for the selection stage, it's probably down to about one in ten. But I had nothing to offer them. Nothing. I was looking back now. I'm just appalled at how <laughs> ill prepared I was. For example, Mark, I can give. Um, I remember this Navy captain asking me. You know, normal question. So why do you want to be a pilot? Well, I just do. Are you interested? Yeah, I'm very interested. Uh, what books have you read? And I thought, hmm, I could only think of one that I hadn't read, which was called Enemy Coast Ahead, which is uh, by Guy Gibson, which is the Dambuster Raid. So I know that now. So he said, oh, you've read um, Enemy Coast Ahead? And I went, mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me about it. And I, so I was as ill-prepared as that. And I did not deserve to get selected, and I didn't. Were you good in ma at maths at school? Maths? Mm. Yeah, I was, uh, maths was one of my subjects, but, and I got, uh, you know, passed out at 18, we call it A-levels, matriculation, I don't know what. And I got a pass in maths, but not especially good. Uh, it was one of my, I did maths and physics, was the two, um, subjects I did up to 18. But again, they're not interested in that when being selected for pilot. They want to see um, personality and then you get tested for leadership. They're very, very interested in that. And you have to kind of stand out from the other nine potential recruits. So sports, uh, intelligence, all, all of the parameters, I didn't much. So I didn't get in, okay, to all three of the, my um, my attempts. So I went back to studying for my A-levels, thinking, how can I, you know, get to be... Anyway, I, I got um, 
two very poor passes at 18. My mother had just died, so the headmaster could see a bit of an excuse there. And it wasn't really the reason I got poor um, results. <laughs> and he got me into uh, a university studying engineering on some kind of, you know, back uh, channel after the places had been given out. So I showed up at Loughborough University to study engineering. I was completely overwhelmed by maths and physics. I, uh, I didn't understand it. But fortunately, this university uh, on the, you would call it Freshers' Week, I guess, various um, pastimes or hobby clubs or interests, and one was called the University Air Squadron, which is uh, the Royal Air Force rang, uh, sorry, they ran probably about 12 of these around the country. And uh, they offered to dress you in a, in a semi-RAF uniform and teach you to fly. Well, how good that, would that be? Wow. Wow. So I said, yes, please. And they took me on. And I don't know why, but they did. You were saying about what makes a good pilot, um, that they were looking to find out uh, what your aptitudes were. What does make a good pilot? That's a good question. It's not maths or physics. Um, it's not necessarily leadership, which they were looking for because you were recruited as an officer. So that was kind of a different side to it. Um, what makes a good pilot is somebody who can think on his feet or sitting on his backside in this case. And um, you might be setting out on, on a mission, it's too strong a word, on a, on a training exercise. Uh, there will be some curve, curved ball come at you. And whilst dealing with the, the mechanics of flying and the small brain power involved in that, you would have to deal with one or more uh, extraneous tasks that came in and not give up on those and hunt down the objective to the best of your ability. <clears throat> that could be one uh, way of looking at what makes a good pilot. In civil airlines, which I flew for probably longer than I was in the RAF, um, the, what makes a good pilot are, are a different set of parameters. Um, uh, sticking rigidly to, this, to the operating procedures laid down by the, and not deviating, unless you had to. Now that's where, it, that's what made a good airline pilot in my view. Somebody who knew the operate, well you had to know the operating procedures so that I could, you, we might show up to fly together, we're talking about airlines now, <clears throat> and we'd both straight away be on the same page. We're, we're flicking switches, making radio calls, as though we had flown together a hundred times, okay? That's what we call standard operating procedures. But a good airline pilot, again, something, uh, a bit of a curveball that is not covered by the standard operating procedures, you would be able to fly or operate this large aeroplane with a, and get it home. What's the biggest curveball you've got, do you recall, in your career that's you've just gone, oh, my goodness, I've got to focus here, I've got to compose, this is not good? Um, you would think I'd come up with a military answer to that, and I might be able to whilst I'm answering this one. But in, in 
um, airline flying, it's it's all about following the procedures, flicking the switches in the correct order, and getting the, <laughs> getting the job done as safely and as routinely as you as is possible. That's the job. We don't, you know, we're caring for passengers. The only um, time that I found uh, I was challenged would be flying in into the back end or the front end of a of a typhoon cyclone, you call it in Australia, where the the wind speeds are outrageous. They're, now you'd think, well, why would you be flying in that? Well, you only stop flying in that when it's a, the wind is the outrageous wind is blowing across the runway and is definitely outside the limits of the airplane. But you would in the because I flew in Asia quite a lot as an airline pilot, and these conditions pertain, uh, you know, during the typhoon season, the beginning uh, all the way through. So you would quite often be going into an airport where you were thinking, I don't fancy this, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to have a go because it's within limits but it's only just within limits and when the wind blows very strongly it's not a constant wind it's in and it's out of limits in and out so we're going back to what um, when I felt challenged as an airline pilot it might be going to typically typically was going into Tokyo Narita which is suffers from these uh, you know these conditions quite often you would be I would so we're going into land the airspeed is pitching up and down horribly uh, because of the wind gusts the nose of the airplane is pitching up and down to cater for the um, the varying speeds and the crosswind angle I'm I'm looking not facing the runway out my front window is the airport terminal buildings as we crab in to to, for, to and I'm thinking well yeah Press on, press on, press on. Wait till we get to the runway. <clears throat> Take it out of autopilot quite late, and then it's down to instinctive uh, uh, flying techniques to straighten it up, land it, and stop it. And I don't know if I explain that clearly to. I'm um, sorry, just use the word at layman, but that was the most challenging thing um, I had to do. Because the other option is go around, which somebody else might have done just two minutes before you, but he had had a slightly different set of circumstances. That's it. Um, and if you're probably talking about, in, you were probably expecting an answer on in-flight emergencies, but certainly in airline flying, that's uh, that's very rare. What about in the military? Um, in the military. Um, you were always sorry. And if you're flying a fighter type airplane, you're usually flying right on the ragged edge of the airplane's performance, as in turning hard, buffeting airplane on the edge of the stall, very low level, whilst being simulated attack by other airplanes. And you're looking back over your shoulder, and you are working at 100% red line. <laughs> stuff and it was <clears throat> it was stressful um, but that was the job 
Was it what you expected when you wanted to become a pilot, when you finally... No, because like I, as I said to you, Mark, I didn't know absolutely anything at all, really, uh, when I, you're talking about when I was 18. But you gradually learn what is expected of you. And certainly if, to get in, you know, for to get into the fast jet world in Australia now, that would be the F-18, I guess. It's not easy, even when you're accepted as a pilot, it's a very competitive uh, process to get to that seat. And the washout rate along the way is, is high. So, um, I, the question was, what's the, that was, you were always operating at 100% on, on, on most flights um, in the fighter world. And it was physically demanding as well as kind of mentally demanding. As well. Talk about the training when you actually got into the RAV, when you finally got into yeah. the controls. How did you feel? I felt very um, lucky because I'd come from nowhere um, to go to university, get into this university escorton, simultaneously getting kicked out of the university because I didn't, and I was not good, uh, good enough to do engineering. I, mentally, I just couldn't cope with the physics and water, hydraulics and the rest of it. <clears throat> but I, by that stage, I'd done nine months in this university air squadron. And somehow, when I reapplied to the Air Force with not much more than I'd had a year and a half early, earlier, this university, the, I'd shown enough on the, this little RAF unit that it must have got me through. So your question was, how did it feel? I felt bloody lucky to be <laughs> in that position. It was, um, you know, we felt too cool for school. We felt an elite. We weren't actually an elite because um, we were operating in a complete bubble because people outside of the military don't pay any attention to it at all. They don't. I don't think, oh, he's a cool bloke, he's in the Air Force, and <laughs> not at all. Um, but we we felt part of an elite, and that's a, that's a, probably the right attitude. When you see a movie like Top Gun, what yeah. does that make you feel? Um, well, disappointingly, it's <laughs> not uh, realistic at all, and it can't be because of the, the, the necessity to film it. For example... For ex an easy example would be Tom Cruise and Goose in the back there <laughs> with their masks hanging off and they're just talking to it. It doesn't happen. Your mask is on. Now, that wouldn't work in a, in, in a movie, would it? You want to see Tom Cruise. <laughs> so he has his mask off. And when he's doing those maneuvers to get rid of, to shoot down the, um, the MiGs, the MiGs, which weren't MiGs, they were American planes, but this is all, <laughs> you know, this is a boring stuff that uh, we know that the general public don't all those maneuvers were entirely unrealistic so overall love the movie but um it, it's if a doctor sees a a medical a hospital movie he'll be picking holes in it if a policeman watches the crime he's going to be picking holes in it so it's just the same for us when you started to go to actually flying yeah um the first plane that you started working in when you're actually on yeah. the job, what what happened then? Well, the the training was, uh, the, the initial training was done on something called a Jet Provost, which was the 
um, it's a jet airplane, which, hey, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, just basically, basically come out of school, and here I'm flying a jet. Um, it made a jet-type noise, but it didn't really go very fast, but that doesn't matter. Um, now, so this was called a jet provost, uh, as I've just said. Not many years after that, I was an instructor on the same jet provost, and I hated the bloody thing. <laughs> it was such seemed such a Mickey Mouse aeroplane that didn't go fast and was you know had a lot of, lot of handling characteristics that to me by then weren't up to scratch. So when you view it as a student, it is a rocket ship. When you view it a few years later, when you're stuck there for a couple of years on the damn thing, I hated it. So. Your question was, how did I feel at the time? I felt great. I loved it. And I, I was top of the world. Well, quite literally. So whereabouts did you go once you started actually getting operational? Where were you based and, and where were you sort of... Actually, my first... Um, once I finished with the training, got out of the training system, I was posted to the Vulcan bomber, if you can... Any idea which... The Vulcan was um, one of the V-bombers which carried nuclear weapons in the Cold War. And it, it, this was a particularly beautiful one. It was a big um, triangular or delta shape, very um, charismatic. Again, though, Mark, on the inside, it was very, very cramped with two pilots up the front and this something very uncomfortable. Nevertheless, it was a great airplane and even better, I was posted overseas to Cyprus, which was um, yeah, just beautiful. So, you know, I'd been brought up, obviously, in England. Manchester, rain, grey skies, my whole life pretty much. And then suddenly I'm out there in the Mediterranean uh, flying a Vulcan bomber. And again, it was just a great few years. Can you talk about some of the sorties that you went on and what sort of experiences you had in the Vulcan? Um, yeah, nothing dramatic, Mark. I'm sorry to, I'm going to disappoint <laughs> you. Um, we, we pretty much had we were we had in Cyprus we had Turkey to the north, which wasn't particularly friendly. We had Syria and Israel to the east, which again not, and we had Egypt to the south. So we were penned in where we could actually fly on a daily, weekly basis. So that meant we had to fly west. It's the only it's the only direction we could go, so we went out over the sea for an hour and came back for another hour whilst the navigators did their magic stuff. Then we dropped down to low level, fly around Cyprus because again we had nowhere else to go. Then we'd get on the bombing range, drop a few practice bombs, and then do a few practice circuits, a few few practice landings. About a five hour flight. Not terribly exciting, I have to say, but overall, it was part of a great life at that time. Because it wasn't that long after the um, the, the the war, the Seven Day War. Yeah, that was nineteen sixty-seven, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And now we're talking nineteen seventy-one, so it's three or four years later. Was there still the tension around? Not. It was no, no tension. Uh, applying to ourselves because we weren't part of that seven-day war or that in fact any of the tensions in the Middle East and as I said we weren't uh, invited to fly over those places so we did we didn't feel it no our, our 
um, our role was nothing to do with Israel, Egypt, um, Jordan, Syria, whatever. It was purely um, against the the communist threat, which it was. It was still the, the Cold War as we knew it. So our wartime targets would be uh, up northeast to, into Russia. What were your thoughts if you actually had to go into battle? Did you Were you prepared for that sort of thing? Was that sort of the, a constant um, thing on the back of your mind, that the fact that you may have to? Um, good question. Um, it never felt very close uh, as you know, a war with Russia, certainly. Uh, it was, however, our job. And uh, however, there were, so, there were so many other pleasant distractions that we did not focus on that. But had the need arose, we would have done it. Absolutely. Uh, with a nuclear bomb flown over to our target. So were you carrying them at all? Or was it just practice bombs that you were, were doing and just doing simulations? You'll be pleased to know, Mark, we did not carry nuclear bombs around because stuff happens. <laughs> And uh, as with the Americans who did occasionally, who did fly fully armed up in the Arctic Circle on there, uh, <clears throat> they were doing this, you know, the same job to a much larger extent, being Americans. They had bombers up in the Arctic Circle in a holding pattern for 12 hours, 15 hours at a wow. time. And they were fully armed because they were programmed to go should, should anything happen. You know? um, and so I think your question is about carrying nuclear bombs. They did have a few mishaps. They dropped, inadvertently dropped one just off southern Spain. What happened then, do you know? They denied it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for a long time there was, I'm trying to think, I think it was just off the coast. Uh, they looked for it and couldn't find it, so they, you know, they effectively blocked off the area for a long time, monitoring for any uh, sign of nuclear disruption, which didn't occur. They dropped. They also lost one in Antarctic, in not Antar in Arc in the Arctic Circle, because that's where they were circling around. Again, when people, somebody found, suspected it happened, of course, deny, 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 but it was there. And uh, But again, it, it, it got covered by ice over a few years, and I guess now that it's going to end the next few years with the global warming, it might, uh, that <laughs> bomb might uh, surface again, but they'll, they'll deal with it. So was there never a, a, a worry that it was going to these bomb that one that was dropped off the off the coast that it would would actually uh, detonate? Uh, no, because um, you arm these bombs. They're, they're not. You don't just pull a pin and they drop off and and. It's not and like your traditional. Business. No, there, there's a. Um, they can. They are final part of the arming process is done from within the airplane so unless they mean to drop it and they mean it to go boom um, that final arming wouldn't have occurred so they're just sitting there inert not i mean it's full of fissile material so hmm. so still there the both of them well i can't uh, it's a long time ago we we're talking in the 60s so that's how many years is that 60 years ago 
I can't say they haven't told me. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about the uh, cramped conditions in these aircraft. Yeah. Um, these guys that were, were flying, and even when you were doing um, operations, mm. how did you how did you cope with that with the cramped conditions? Yeah, just you just coped with it. You were sitting on a hard seat, and you do that for five, six, seven hours, and that was your job. You just I'm, I'm sorry, Mark, to give you a you know boring answer, but you just did cope with it. You didn't. Mm. You were sitting on an ejection seat, for example, in our case. And the, what about claustrophobia? Was there any of that? No. No, if you were claustrophobic, you wouldn't have got anywhere near that part of the flying chain. What was the sort of thing, though, that did um, rule people out when you were going through the selection process to be, uh, say, a bomber pilot or fighter pilot? What, what were the things that really ruled people out? Uh, well, going, we're now going back to the, the horrible jet province that I mentioned earlier, the, the training plane. Uh, some people right off the back would be airsick. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, because um, military flying is not... Okay, we're going to take off now and we're going to fly for an hour in this direction, then we'll turn around and come back. Pretty much as soon as you get airborne, you're putting on a lot of bank and pulling G, which, uh, if you're familiar, is when a military airplane turns on, from north onto west, he might well be pulling, I'm sorry, not just turns, but when he's doing combat maneuvers and you were training for that. Well, nowadays they pull 9G. Really? Oh, yeah, in, 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 um, in the F-18s that fly around here. So if you're sitting there as strapped in and you, you've got a helmet on, which might weigh, I don't know, three kilos, something like that, that helmet suddenly weighs three times nine, weighs three times nine, 27 kilos. And at the same time, you're moving your neck and looking at there, which is pulling your head in all kinds of directions. That's just one um, effect of radial G when you you know when you're turning a fighter plane. It, it's uncomfortable. The other effect is that um, all your blood starts to pull away from your head, and and the heart can't pump it up back up to your head. So you start to um, you start to grey out, and if you keep pulling it beyond whatever your limit is, you'll black out. You will black out. How close did you get? Uh, I've, I've certainly blacked out a few times because if you're not ready for it, if you suddenly, you, you tense up your muscles to, to cramp your stomach to keep all the blood from pooling down to your lower limbs. To and, keep and, it up. and the G-suit would obviously help with that. A G-suit cramps on your legs very good question it cramps on you but it and it doesn't but it doesn't do much else it it might reduce the effective g by one or two you've still got a lot of work to do so you're grunt, grunting and yeah it's it's hard work we're talking now about a fighter jet we moved on from training but we did uh, your question was weeding out people from training well we did those maneuvers in a 4g 5g in the training plane. And so some people would be sick straight away. There was a procedure to try and uh, recover them, but it often didn't work. And as I alluded to earlier on, um, people 
the very many people couldn't cope with flying the airplane, pulling that G, and thinking about whatever task had to be done. How much so, further forward from when when you've obviously when you're working at that speed, yeah, you've got to think ahead. How much further ahead is is it a practiced art that you you need to do, or is it just happening? No, we were we were not clever people, but <laughs> uh, the best could uh, keep their brain function going while there was a lot of other stuff going on. For example, if I may, if you uh, the RAF flew low level, that was their that was their modus operandi to, to avoid radar, okay? The Americans had a different idea, which is n not the subject. So you could be flying at 500 miles an hour at two, a couple of hundred feet above the ground. So, and then you were in, in those days, you had a map. You had nothing else, a map and a stopwatch. You're going along looking for a tower that's on your track and it's a little bit left, so you start to correct for that. And then... In comes another fighter to uh, simulating an enemy fighter to uh, you know, attack you. So you now have to maneuver against him, and the others in your formation carry out the same maneuvers, whatever, to de defeat this sim this attack. So you have a bit of a furball, and eventually you get spat out, or and now you have to find well, where are we because we're off track and we still want to progress at 500. Now we have to up our speed because we're a bit late. How, how much speed? When are we going to get there? This sort of thing. So, yeah, that pretty much, that sums up a uh, fighter pilot task. When you're um, flying at that sort of speed and at yeah. that sort of um, level at, you know, a few hundred feet, are you having to combat drift and things like that? Is, uh, is wind a factor or is it just you're going too fast? Uh, wind was not a factor, and if sorry, it was faster you go, the less effect wind has. It does have an effect, but but you could drift off track for several reasons: wind, or most likely you're not flying an accurate course with because somebody's trying to chase you from behind. Um, sorry, what was your question? Wind? Yeah, uh, as I say, well, no, wind just... is not. But um, what is an even more surprising? Um, situation in which wind does apply let me uh, so moving on um before i tr transitioned to fighter to the phantom fighter jet i had to go through a weapons training school okay flying uh, at an old fighter plane called the hunter beautiful airplane and <clears throat> sorry part of um the most part of the course was firing various weapons at, grand, at, the, at the ground ranges. And the first one we did was firing the, the cannon, okay, at, a, at a, uh, a, a target on the range which was made up of Hessian flags sort of thing stretched out between two poles. So you'd fly around the pattern, you'd maybe a thousand feet, you'd watch the target go under the nose, you'd roll over, pull down, get it fixed in your gun sight, the target. So now you're rushing down um, a slope towards this target until various events happen to sh prompt you into firing the gun. You're at a certain range, which was about 
600 meters, something like that. So 600 meters away from this Hessian flag, and you're hurtling at it, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your windscreen all the time, you would a gunfire of only that length. Now, you can. these are cannon shells, maybe uh, six inches long. And they come hurtling out of the gun. Okay, you're all, you're already going at six hundred and plus miles an hour. Was it exhilarating when you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But the point I'm getting at, Mark, is that this projectile, which comes out at the speed of heat towards that target, is affected by the wind. What? What? How can that be? And so. You had to be, so if it was a strong wind from, say, the left or the right, you had to lay off your gun sight into the wind by, you know, uh, by a guesstimated amount, <clears throat> a judged amount, such that when the, the cannon shell got drifted by the wind, it would drift onto the target. <clears throat> now, I've never figured that out. How can, or a rocket, <laughs> how can that be affected by wind in, in a flight time of 1.5 seconds, but it is. That's amazing. And now, please don't press me on the physics of that. It does happen. <laughs> um, but all this must happen in seconds. Seconds, yeah. I, I remember going through that particular school, and I was doing fine until we came up to the first weapon event, which, as I, I've described, was firing the cannon, which is actually the easiest of the weapons events. No score, no score. And this went on and on and on for three or four flights until all my, you know, the event would be filmed through the gun sight and you'd get a debrief by one of the weapons experts and he'd go, Yeah, that looks good. The pip is on, the target, where was the wind? Yeah, you've laid off the right amount and you've fired. Yeah, you're in range, so you probably got a reasonable score. How many did you get? None. Zero. What? Oh, okay. Well, tough luck. Better luck next time. <clears throat> because it wasn't, uh, it was difficult to, ass to assess exactly what's going on. It's all very well for him to say, tough luck, you should have done it, you deserved a better score. But after three or four of these, now I was up to be terminated from the course if I didn't get uh, on my next flight, if that I didn't is, get a score. That's pressure. Yeah, so I, I honestly, I remember going out to the airplane thinking, oh, well, I've had a good time, which actually is not the right attitude. It should be, I'm going to nail this. I am going to do this. But I remember going, yeah, I've enjoyed it, uh, given it my best shot. This is the wrong attitude. But anyway, I remember going down the dive uh, on possibly my last flight, and it was, then you pull off, and 12 Wow, I'd actually hit it. And my euphoria was such that I, as you pull out of the dive with 6G, as I explained what 6G is like, I didn't stop it, the, the, the subsequent climb, and I went vertically up into cloud. I was so happy with myself, which was actually damn difficult to get packed down out of the cloud in the right place. So wind, it affects bullets. Um, well, it, well, we know that from snipers, right? And um, it's not an exact science because all I'd got the gun sight in the right place, but it just wasn't hurting. 
I was under a lot of pressure, and I and I remember the the reading my post course report where I said uh, talking about this at Guns event. Oh yeah, Nolan pulled himself up by his bootstraps uh, to meet the standard, and that's the first time I really understood that um, that phrase to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because it's it's actually impossible, but you, you can imagine the effort required to do that. There must have been a part of you, though, that really was going, I'm not going to be defeated by this. Well, I guess so, because that, that's happened to me a few times. I'm not, I'm not by any means had a smooth upward trajectory <laughs> in my flying life. There's been lots of rocks and pitfalls and snakes and ladders along the way. And is that typical for a for a pilot? In uh, the... No, the best best ones have a smooth upward trajectory that goes onwards and upwards up to the top. And the the, the up and down bit that I had is, you know, is typical of, uh, of mid level uh, mid level competency. What were the egos like? Uh, huge, <laughs> no doubt about it. It was a cruel, cruel world, uh, in, certainly in the fighter world. The, uh, the banter, as it's called nowadays, was, um, was you'd like to say cruel but fair. It was cruel and unfair and would pick on any weaknesses in somebody in a joking way but in a hurtful way um, in the crew room chat. Good old sledging. Sledging. That's what it is, yeah. So what did you learn about yourself through all of that? I learned that you never give up because um, on a subsequent course I did get scratched and that's when I ended up instructing back on the damn dear provost for a couple of years, but then I got back into it uh, through never giving up. I, I felt I could do this, I can do this. And I did. Then you moved on your, your the sort of the flagship of what you flew the 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 Phantom. Yeah, um, as I say, after a snakes and ladders dive down the snake, I <laughs> got up the ladder by yeah by believing in myself and um, overcoming obstacles, and, and I got onto the Phantom, which was a beast of an aeroplane. Absolute. You had it here in, in Australia before you got the F-111s, but only for a short period, so not many people remember it. But the, the Phantom, an American aeroplane, um, was ugly in a purposeful way. It <laughs> dripped fuel, it dripped hydraulics. It was unserviceable a lot of the time. It had two gr big... Um, jet exhaust right at the back that when you wanted to you would put it into afterburner and those those jet exhausts would open up to, like, like in Top Gun you've seen the back end of those F-14s the, the nozzles would open at the back and then boom like the afterburner and you could see um, pink, purple, red, orange colours coming out the back to 20 feet flames out, out at the end, and that would kick you forward at an astonishing rate. What was that sort of acceleration? What did that feel like? Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal, And but it felt smooth from in the, inside the cockpit. Even There was violence going on <laughs> at the back end of the aeroplane. Really, there was. 
Uh, and it, and and it's the same in in current fighters. Actually, actually, Mark, you know, current fighters they're not as quite as manly as they used to be. I what? say that with a big smile on my face <laughs> because um, if you go to this, my son's, the, I flew those Phantoms mainly at a place called RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire. My sons went back to visit uh, because they were kids around that base. They went back to visit a couple of years ago. And the, the current airplane that's flying there is the, uh, the, the Typhoon, which is a super capable, much more capable, much faster than the Phantom, everything else. But the engines aren't as noisy. And they said, Dad, they are just not as noisy as they used to be. So when I was joking when I said they're not as manly, because they definitely are. But if you could, um, we lived uh, in a private house three or four miles from the base. And our exit route from the base, um, uh, we went, for some reason, I can't remember, but we went at about 600 feet and we actually flew over my house and then turned right, uh, hard right to go out over the North Sea. And so we love this sound of freedom over our house. It would be outrageous if it happened now. I would be complaining to everybody about the outrageous noise these damn things made, but we loved it and my kids loved it. It's something that you grow up with. I know that um, living on, on an Air Force base myself, yeah. uh, back in the day, because we could, we'd wander down, well, I'd often wander down and watch the Mirages oh, and exactly F-111s, yeah. watching them take off. And it was just the, the feeling. It would reverberate your chest if you were oh, close enough. Yeah, or it did. Yeah. It did, and it was an amazing feeling. So let's look at what happened on the inside then. What was the experience on your body when you that sort of thrust oh well because it's um it's a good question but it's not like uh, the the other the effect of pulling pulling g around a corner around a turn it's not like that at all it's uh, as i mentioned a couple of minutes back it's actually a very smooth acceleration and because it's longer uh longitudinal straight fore and aft pushing um it's not affecting physiologically affecting you it gives you a slight lift out of your seat, um, but it's a smooth and pleasant uh, feeling. When you are dealing at that sort of speed and that sort of height, were there any uh, situations where you've thought, oh, crap, uh, I've, I've overstepped my, my, my uh, ability here? Uh, in my case, surprisingly, I didn't overstep my ability, which <laughs> I... I've, I have many tales of where I have stuffed up, but not to the extent that I'd lost control of the aeroplane, which is probably what you're alluding to. Well, okay, well, let's talk about where you have stuffed up, where you would... Oh, no, we're moving into my area of expertise. <laughs> what a great question, Mark. Um, all right, here's um, an anecdote from Flying the Phantom. So uh, the Falklands War broke out in April 1982, and I had just moved onto this particular squadron called uh, 29 Squadron. And uh, it was mainly a naval battle from the get-go. It, it was always going to be. But the Air Force uh, were desperate to get in on the act. Absolutely desperate. So they nominated one squadron of Phantoms to go to the Falklands and you know defend the ships. But the trouble was there was nowhere to land on the Falklands. It was... Well, 
There just wasn't. The, 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 the one and only airport was not in the state to accept phantoms. However, they, that was not a problem. We'll get it ready and we'll get them. So 29 Squadron, my outfit was nominated as the squadron that was going to save the world down in the Falklands. So hmm, that was a pretty strange feeling because yeah, they, Argentines, they fly Mirage, which, you know, they're a capable airplane. And the, we knew that the Argentine Air Force was very capable. Oh, we knew that their pilots were very brave, capable pilots. It turned out that the equipment and the training perhaps didn't live up to the, that level for the pilots. However, a different story. Back to my story. Um, so there were, I think, eight crews, uh, pilot navigator crew, nominated to go and save the world down in the Falklands. And I was number eight, just having joined. And I thought, oh, okay, get down. We did lots of exciting stuff, uh, training for it over a couple of weeks. And then the requirement was knocked down to, I think, six crews. So I pretended to be disappointed that I was not going, <laughs> but secretly not too, yeah, not too unhappy that I could continue normal life at Coningsby. So this, <clears throat> the, the, the six went to Ascension Island, which is halfway to the Falklands. I continued uh, whatever I was doing. And then about a week later, I think I was playing cricket and somebody came out and said, sir, the squadron commander wants to see you. So, what? Okay. Okay. He said, oh, Tim, he said, um, you're going down to Ascension Island tomorrow. You're leading another two phantoms and you'll be leaving it um, early. It's something like 4 a.m. in the dark. Oh, shoot, I thought. So I went, uh, you go home, get your kit and, you know, be here at three o'clock, whatever. So I went home and at the start of all this, we had been issued with a war kit. Now, that was a canvas tube about five feet long, stuffed with tin hat, as in, you know, World War I uh, infantry helmet, um, knife fork spoon in a, in a, in a in a uh, tin that was your mess tin. Uh, it was basic war kit that uh, definitely World War II vintage, if not before, including very long pairs of underpants that didn't fit. Uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing was, a, there was not one useful thing in there, really. So I went to get my, uh, I saw my wife, I love you, I'm not going to like this, but I'm going away for a bit. Now, where's that, um, that big duffel bag I brought home? month ago she said oh it's out in the garage i think and uh, it was only half the kids had been at it and it was half empty <laughs> so that was i found a, about a half of what was missing got that sort that was the start of it i reported in for work at let's say 4 a.m the next morning it was pelting down absolute the steroids of rain and the thunderstorms around and um, so I was the leader of these three phantoms that was going to get a, about an eight-hour flight with refueling. And now I can admit this, uh, 30, 40, whatever it is, years on. <laughs> I, when we'd had the briefing about all the procedures to get to the ascension, I was at the back not listening. <laughs> so... 
the, there was a lot of people scurrying back and forth to get the airplanes ready. And, and I, I asked the chief navigator, I said, tell me, how is it we're getting there again? He said, well, it was in the brief. I said, oh, yeah, okay. And you never want to lose face, even, even to a ridiculous extent. So I was going to leave this. I didn't know how we were going to get there. Uh, he said, it's all in the brief, and it's in, this, it's in this packet of documents, which too late to read now because we were going in for our pre-flight brief, brief. So, okay. Pretending I know what I was doing, we set off. And we, we had to go south and then meet uh, some tankers, some Victor air refueling tankers, tankers in a thunderstorm. So we set off and it was quite difficult to find them on our radar, but we did find them and then we turned in behind them and it was very difficult to get the refueling probe into the basket. It was all up and down in the turbulence, but it got done. And I, uh, I thought, oh, we did well to find our tanker. We, uh, 20 minutes later, we burst out of the thunderstorm into beautiful clear skies over southwest England. And we, we'd actually not blundered, that's the wrong word, but we had just swarmed into this. We had just got into this swarm of tankers. It wasn't three that I imagined, one each. It was about 12 or 14 all bunched together. And we just, by not reading the brief, I'd barreled into this. I'd found my right one, my correct tanker, but there was no room on either left or right. Oh, that was that was lucky that we didn't bump into any of those other tankers. <laughs> So we set forth then, and the, each tanker, we'd take on fuel at every 45 minutes or something like that. And then the, one tanker would uh, give fuel to another tanker until it was empty or time to turn back. And it's, so, so gradually, this swarm of 12 big aeroplane tankers reduced down to one tanker and three Phantoms. By this time, we were We'd undone our straps a little bit so we could get a wriggle room and we'd drift away from it by a mile so we didn't have the close full mate. And all of a sudden, after maybe six, six seven hours, he said, Triple X flight, that's us. Um, your, your position is north, zero, 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 zero point zero, because we're on the equator just about east, uh, whatever it was, some Latin long that was full of zeros. And... Um, have a good day. Huh? What? I snapped my mask on, just like Tom Cruise in, in, uh, <laughs> in Top Gun. I said, are you leaving us now? He said, yeah. He said, don't you know the brief? And I went, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I said, uh, I've got, I know the brief, but how are we getting to Ascension again? We don't have enough fuel. He said, oh, there's, no, there's a tank, you know, like, Dummy, if you'd read the brief, you know what you... There was another tanker coming out of Ascension Island to meet you, and you'll meet him in about an hour. And we went, ooh. <laughs> and the other two who had swept up and jumped on my wing very close, and we... <clears throat> that was quite a moment, because I hadn't expected to be left on our own, literally in the middle of the Atlantic. Literally. And just point that way for an hour, and hopefully we'll find another aeroplane and take fuel on it from it and continue on. So that's the typical stuff up, Mark, on my part. I hadn't listened to the briefing, and I was shocked and surprised and horrified by um, by what happened. Were there many of those? Because it must have been just a, a, a fun time in your life. It was fun, and we always got away with it, and we bragged about um, stuff like that. 
Um, stuff ops on. Uh, it's, some of them are, are kind of difficult to explain in this in this uh, context, but I've done beat ups of places that would have been wise not to have done because um, you were you were. You asked about egos, they were huge, mine was huge. <laughs> and I remember we were asked to do a flyby at a graduation parade at a training school once. And um, okay, they want to beat up. <laughs> you got the right boy here, was my, were my thoughts. As I found the airfield and it was cloudy. And for, someone, for someone that doesn't know, what's a beat up? A beat up is if um, I just go roaring. Buzz the tower as in buzz the, the, as in Top Gun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I keep referring to Top Gun that I said wasn't realistic, but there is a lot, a lot of in lot in there. So the, this case, there were all the students graduating from their jet provost course. Their mums and dads were standing outside their hangar, expecting, and I was going to show them what the real Air Force was about. And so I. Plugged in those afterburners, felt that lift out of the seat as the acceleration. And but it was very difficult to see them because it was cloudy. The visibility was poor. It, the beat up should have been called off. But oh no, no, no! I can, I can do this. Carried on until I out of the murk. I picked. Oh, the, I was fairly familiar with this airfield. I saw the hangars. I saw the people, and it was gone because that's the speed I was going at. And just out of the corner of my eye, as I passed the people down on my left side, very, I was very low, making lots of noise, which is what I wanted. I saw these big um, lighting towers go by my right wing, which I didn't know were there. <gasps> so, uh, yeah, lots of things like that. Um, Perhaps even better when um, still are we still on stuff ups? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> the, um, I, I, a year or so later, I was flying the Spitfire, doing demonstrations. Have you heard of the Battle of Britain Memorial flight? Yes. Okay. Good. Well, Spitfire, Hurricane, and Lancaster. So I was flying the Spitfire and the Hurricane. My ego was now much bigger than before. And um, so one, one pleasant evening in September, it's probably right, right on this date now, is September the 25th, Battle of Britain Day. This is celebrated every year. I had to fly from my base in, in the middle of England down to the south in a Spitfire. Just dead easy. Fly down there, south of London, find the Royal Air Force Staff College, full of bigwigs, having their cocktail. Battle of Britain cocktail party. Fly over, not too much of a beat up because you'd be in trouble. Okay. <laughs> Just a nice flyby and come home. What a lovely job. The beautiful weather. I'm flying down there in my black flying suit, red sunglasses. I was I was way too cool for to live with anybody. I'm slightly exaggerating, but not much. I love myself, <laughs> sick as Australians say. <laughs> so, uh, going about a 45-minute transit, which was lovely in a Spitfire, because every minute you flew it was preciously guarded. They, you know, they didn't want the airplanes flying too much. 
and um, this this the target, if you like, it wasn't really a target. Was called Bracknell, which is in a beautiful part of England. It's to the south and the west of London Heathrow Airport. So I called up and I. I didn't really have to call them, but I thought I'd do them a favor and let them know I was in the area. I was out of their airspace, but... So uh, our call sign was Spitfire. <laughs> That's cool. He uh, threw VFR controller. It wasn't, it wasn't the ones that were controlling the airplanes. It was just a little corner of the airspace. Uh, this is uh, Spitfire. Um, oh, hello. Um, yeah, I'm going to be flying past Bracknell at time 18.35, whatever it was. Uh, and I'll be flying uh, west to east. He said, oh, okay, fine. He said, and he came back on a couple of minutes later. Spitfire, would you like to do a flyby at Heathrow? Now, that's a biggie, right? I'd never been to Heathrow, <laughs> ever seen it. it. Big airport, Friday evening, busy airs with airliners going about their business. But it, that's now we were not supposed to accept these kind of invitations, <laughs> but of course we did. <laughs> The ego had to be satisfied. So, if if you just imagine in your mind a map of southern England, I'm flying from from the west to the east, exactly on a heading of zero nine zero, and I find the Bracknell, and I that not too much of a beat up because you'd be in trouble. Pulled up, and I called Heathrow again. Heathrow, I'm at 1,000 feet, flying 090. Oh, Roger, I'll have you on radar. Uh, keep that heading. So I'm now tracking along the bottom of Heathrow's airspace. And he said, um, in about two minutes, I'm going to turn you left onto north. Um, can you see the airport? Wow, that's huge. Wow, my God. Look, I'm aiming, I'm trying to pick out the control tower, but it's too far away. So I think, oh, well, I can pr probably do a job on that. And he said, I'm going to, in two minutes, I'm going to turn your left onto north, and then I'll be turning you in, um, in, in a gap in the approaching traffic. So I looked out to my right, out to the east, and there was a stack of airliners coming down the approach with their lights twinkling. And they, it was not dusk, but it was getting that way, and you could see the lights. I thought, wow, look at all those airliners. Wow, my God. So he said, OK, Spitfire, turn left onto north. And so I started the turn, and and now on the Spitfire, the um, the control stick ends. It's called a spade grip. It was popular in World War Two times. So the stick comes out of the floor, and there's a circular top to it, like a ring. And on that ring was the gun firing button, which had been changed into a radio transmit button, all made out of World War II engineering brass. So, turn Spitfire, turn left, zero, uh, 360. And I I don't know why, I, t I looked down at my thumb when I said Roger or something like that, well, turning left onto north. And we used to wear uh, white chamois leather, leather gloves, which very soon on, on the palm side of your hand became black because were, you were always patting airplanes full of oil as you did your inspections or whatever. And they were sticky black horrible things on the palm. I looked down at my Roger Spitfire, I said, or something like that. And as my thumb came off the, the brass button, the brass button was stuck to my thumb. <laughs> and I looked 
nonplus, nonplussed at this thing going, what? But that was only for a second because then the brass button dropped from my thumb and clunked onto the floor and rolled down the back of the Spitfire. So now I had no radio because that blacks out the radio completely. It's interrupted. So I can neither hear them <laughs> nor speak to them. So I'm now about three miles from Heathrow Airport with all these airliners stacked up on my right. <clears throat> now, there's only one thing to do. That's continue on your last heading and disappear and bugger off back to base and not bother them. Oh, no. I've been invited to beat up Heathrow. <laughs> I'm going to do it. What was I thinking? I can't tell you what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I tipped left, got down as low as I could, and I'm now going to beat up London Heathrow Airport with no radio on a busy Friday evening. Can you explain that to me, Mark? I mean, it's, it's just nonsense. Anyway, I did it. But I didn't do a very good beat up because jumbo jets, as we used to call them then, were a lot bigger than I had, had imagined. Being amongst them, there were lighting towers, there were um, many buildings in the middle of the airport. So I did... I picked up what I thought was the control tower, but I was already feeling, I am in the shit here. <laughs> and my, my heart had gone out of it, but I was right in the middle of it. I was literally in the middle of Heathrow, right? So I go, oh, crush, what am I doing? I'm already thinking this before I'm at the control tower. I float what I think past what I think is the control tower. And then there's another runway in front of me. I didn't know there were two. Of course, there were two runways, but I didn't know. And there was an airplane landing. Fortunately, landing, not taking off. I dodged over him. And then when you when you want to disappear, which I did, I, at that point, I just wanted to shrink into <laughs> a, a cloaking device would have been excellent. <laughs> so I'm now going at, at whatever speed a Spitfire goes. Um and I go lower and lower and lower just to disappear so nobody can see me. Well, that doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. So I've now turned from the steely-eyed, egotistical, brave, I can do anything, into a complete jelly-limbed <laughs> thing that wants to disappear. So I'm past the hotels, past the A4 road, more hotels, disappear, please let me disappear until I'm out of there. And then I had the most unpleasant 45-minute transit back to my base, thinking, oh, no, how am I going to get out of this? I am really, really in the shoot now. So, as I say, the, uh, the brave man has <laughs> changed totally. Landed back at base. I normally have pleasantries, doesn't chat with the ground crew, but now I had no time for that. The propeller was still... As I jumped out and hobbled to the, um, the squadron uh, buildings. I was pulling, I was hobbling because I was pulling out of my uh, fire pocket uh, a book that contained uh, information on all airports, including Heathrow. And I was wanting a, the telephone number of the person that I'd spoken to, okay, the air, the, the air traffic controller. An old fashioned telephone, 1980 something. Burr, burr. Uh, he threw a visual control. Hello, it's a, in a, in a very wimpy voice. It's a Spitfire pilot here. I was going to beg forgiveness, and please don't, if you possibly don't tell anybody. 
Oh, Spitfire. But he said, oh, thank Christ you've rang. Um, look, if if anybody asks you, did you, you know, don't tell anybody that we invited you, please, please, please. <laughs> and I said, so he was, I said, yeah, okay, man. I having now all the bravery, bravery pump, surged pump, through pump my, yeah. and I said, okay, then I can do sort of, you know, Tom Cruise style, <laughs> put the phone down. I got away with it because they were in trouble as well. Oh, that is amazing. Now, you, you've flown some of the premier aircraft that the British Air Force had at that time, but it must have been a real honour to pilot the Hurricanes and the Spitfires. Yes, it was. Um, it definitely was. Um, you had to be, you know, you, I'm not at all saying you're the best of the best to get that job. It was part. It was part-time allied to my main job of instructing on the phantom but you had to be on this certain on the phantom um, school if you like you had to be a flying instructor on that because you were going to we didn't go away on deployments like this fighters the operational squadrons did so you had a you had to be on that squadron and you had to be recommended by somebody and i had got a recommend by this uh, big wig on the base whom I had impressed somehow, and I don't really know how. So I land parachuted, excuse me, into this job, and you, it was a great honor, and it stirred up a huge amount of envy amongst one's fellows, which of course was great. Uh, but at the same time, you had to be very, very careful with the airplanes. And there were, I don't know why, but after the, you know, the jet age, Pilots, if you like, have always not whinged about flying the Spitfire particularly, but pointed out the difficulties of flying it. Whereas, really, oh yeah, um, it had a very narrow track on the carriage. Um, you couldn't see out of it if it, when it was on the ground. It had a huge engine sticking up straight ahead. You couldn't see straight ahead. You could only see a little bit down between the wing and the engine nacelle. And it was very, very skittery in a crosswind. Now, I've just been, actually, I've just reading only yesterday about the, um, the air, air transport auxiliary that used to ferry pilots, that used to ferry aircraft around in England. And, they, and, and the, the big story there is that women pilots were, in those that were big for those days were allowed to do this. And they flew Spitfires around in atrocious weather and I remember yesterday reading that um, she said jet age pilots have always not complaining is not the right word, but pointing out how difficult it is to fly the Spitfire um, with crosswinds and visibility at the front and this and that. And yet 18, 19 year old kids do it and women did it. Huh? So there's a there's a there's a discontinuity there. But we did find it quite tricky to fly. Um, because of the in a crosswind particularly did you get a real feel for the nostalgia of actually what yes. these guys went through um well the performance in terms of speed and we, we didn't thrash them by any means so we looked after them extremely well uh, so we didn't enjoy their full performance we say but even so it would have been uh, not much compared to what our day job in the Phantom. 
So we didn't get a feel for how superior they were in, in, in the day. But you were flying a piece of history and that infused you definitely with, um, I've got to take care of this baby and a certain sense of pride as well. When you were actually flying these things, though, did you get that that historic uh, awareness of of days gone by? On the way down to Heathrow, I did. Mm. I described my feeling of well-being as I flew south on that particular day, because um, you look out at the elliptical wings on the Spitfire, particularly, you know, beautiful and. Uh, and only applicable to the Spitfire. So you, you knew you were in a Spitfire, which is a piece of British history and heritage. Um, so you were infused with that historical heritage, blah, blah, blah. And I got to take care. But overriding was I got to take, take care. care of this baby. And if you knew there was a crosswind landing coming on the other end, you, you started to get uh, pay more and more attention as you got down towards your... Um, landing area. Are there many of them flying these days? There's more and more, which okay. is uh, strange. In 1982, there weren't many in England, two or three or four, other than the historic flight. But uh, Spitfires get rebuilt from impossible-looking wrecks that are found around the place and loving, lovingly and expertly restored. And so actually there's more and more Spitfires coming, you know, on the market. Are you glad that uh, after, say, flying the Spitfire that you actually, even though you really didn't want to uh, in the Falklands uh, dispute, that you actually got some sort of combat uh, flying hours, that you actually sort of were flying into the, the danger zone for one of them. Yeah, it, we did fly into the danger zone because the, because there was we didn't stay at Ascension Island. We actually went to the Falklands, albeit when the, con, the big conflict had just finished because we needed somewhere to land. Um, so at the time, uh, we're going back 1982, it did seem feather in one's cap, something like that, that you'd been involved or albeit on the very edge of it yeah Falklands 29 squadron phantom blah blah, blah. but since that was the first conflict in the RAF had been involved in since the Korean War and they and they had that they'd hardly been involved in that so it's really the first conflict since the second world war so it was a big deal but since then they've been in this whole train of conflicts and, and you know pilots in real danger so at the time yes but in the intervening years that that was nothing I mean, I'm not talking about the Sea Harrier pilots but our uh, my own involvement it did seem I'll tell you another anecdote if I may absolutely so we're now ensconced as the air defense element in the in the Falklands. Um, life wasn't too bad. We lived when we were on duty. We lived and slept in a porter cabin, so not too bad. And um, we had a visit from might have been Margaret Thatcher. Certainly came down, but it might have been another kind of pre uh, TV. I think it was just TV uh, news. TV came down, 
And they wanted to see a phantom scramble because we were on alert with armed aeroplanes in case this happened, in case that happened, blah, blah, blah. And we had a crew, you know, on five-minute readiness in order to, uh, in the classical way, run out to the aeroplane, not very far away, climb up, rigging on all this uh, helmet stuff, plonk down, and while you're strapping in, you're giving the wind-up signal with your classic, you know, scramble, 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 okay? So on this day, I was the the, the duty pilot on alert, along with my uh, nav navigator. And so the t so it was it was rigged up for the TV news, who was standing outside uh, the the porter cabin door, with their camera on a tripod, probably in those days. That the alarm would sound, the duty crew would sprint out and climb up the ladders, twill the fingers and reheats and all the stuff you would, uh, you know, you would want out of that visually. So we're sitting inside the porter, porter cabin, knowing it's going to, the bell is going to ring. And we had to grab our life jackets uh, on the way before, uh, from a hook. And this had things dangling from it, uh, tubes and clips and God knows what, okay. Scramble, 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 which was a bit artificial, but that's World War II. But they did actually say that whilst ringing a bell for the TV. I come bursting out of the porter cabin, trying not to look and slyly grin at the camera, but I didn't. Bursting out of the porter cabin and these dangling things off my life jacket caught, got caught on the door handle. So I did some kind of cartoon, <laughs> one step forward and one step back. Um, that was not the look I was trying to give to the TV at all, as I looked a bit of an idiot. <laughs> Untangled myself, went and did the rest of the job. About a year later, um, I was sitting in Cyprus and I met an Australian who's... I didn't know any Australians in those days. Oh, what have you been doing? This And I said, oh, I did a spell in the Falklands after the war. He said, oh yeah, I saw some, I won't say the exact word, I remember <laughs> seeing on TV news some complete prat come charging out of the porter cabin and got snarled up with the door handle. And I said, yeah, that was me. Now, how could it, how could it get to Australia and be remembered? So this news clip had perhaps gone around the world as viral. Viral is the, is the the, the, the things didn't go viral then. You just watched what you, you were fed on the TV. But people as far, as far away as Australia saw me get snarled up. That is amazing. You're also a, quite an accomplished uh, aviation artist and artist in general. Um, didn't know you knew that much. <laughs> um, so what got you into the painting in the first place? Um, I was... I do remember, it's not a very inspiring story, but... And when I was on a certain unit, there were uh, prints were selling of military airplanes in side-on view, just that. No, it was a white background, and there were highly detailed. So I tried to copy those and got it. And then I found um, that I could, you know, I could actually make a, a painting, and, and people started buying them. And uh, that uh, progressed as a business. I could 
I got better and better. And such that in 1985, when I left the RAF, um, the revenue from my painting business was the same as same as my salary. It's amazing attention to detail that you do have in the uh, in, in 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 your paintings. Well, it's because it's a subject I know well. I know what pilots like. I was selling to pilots exclusively, and um, a, if a plane is in any way coming towards you, it's, it's called textual perspective, where you put detail on the, the bit that's close to you and fade out the detail as it go as the you know the rest of the plane um, goes doesn't go away from you but the bit that's close to you has the most detail as, as it does in looking around a room and that appealed to pilots and in those 1985 is, is that 35 years ago yeah yeah I was I was selling paintings as many as I could knock out I don't like to use that phrase to <laughs> to my clients for six hundred dollars each 35 oil paintings wow now I have sold some paintings recently for like a, a thousand but not dollars but not many 35 years ago what's the inflation in that time I couldn't sell a painting for that much nowadays to save my life <laughs> I don't I didn't know how lucky I was so um, I did enjoy that and I and I made prints of the paintings and advertised them and I like I liked selling stuff that I had made I got a huge satisfaction from that more than the more than the, the cash that I got after tax such that I remember uh, I was displaying a Spitfire at an air show a big air show, a USAF base in England. I don't know, 200, 100, at least let's say 100,000 spectators. And I displayed the Spitfire. But at this time, we also, myself, my wife, and my two kids who were less than 10, I guess, we carted a caravan around to, to a lot of air shows and sold prints out of the back of the caravan in the awning. So that was set up at this air show. I just, this particular time I displayed the Spitfire, rah, 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 landed, parked it away somewhere. I went back to the um, caravan to sell prints mainly, you know, not, not the actual paintings. And I remember thinking I enjoyed the, that afternoon doing um, market type business. I enjoyed that as much as I did flying the Spitfire. You know, somebody would say, uh, how much are those? And I go, uh, 20 quid or whatever. Or, would you take 10? And I go, no. But you ended up taking 15. That sort of market-type business, I loved it. And I loved the fact that it was stuff that I had made. And I, that particular day, I enjoyed doing that side as much as the air display. If someone wants to find out about your painting and have a look at them, how can they do that? Oh, thank you for asking, Mark. Uh, TimNolanArt.com Cool. Well, it's a great way to end. And uh, thanks for joining us, Tim Nolan. Thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Oh, thank you, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical. 
Merrimark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrimark Medical. Contact Merrimark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gimpy Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery or craft foam or even loose filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. And they'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats. And they've also got anti-fatigue matting and they have industrial mats and rubber. And if they don't have it, Andrew will get it for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. Their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, an 8-ton, and a a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and have a roller and even a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 and I guarantee the earth will move for you.